Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Helen Brown's captivating storytelling has created an international phenomenon, a family life narrative on the healing power of cats, which leavens grief with comedy and resonates with readers all over the world. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Helen talks about the journey that has seen her books published in 18 countries, the movie that's coming soon, and how a cat became a metaphor for life. But before we talk to Helen, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Helen's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But here now is Helen. Hello there, Helen, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, it's lovely to be talking with you, Jenny. Touch old mates, aren't we? Yes, we are. We are. We go back a long way. Look, I usually start by asking that once upon a time question about how people got to write fiction. But I happen to know in your case that fiction really has always been based around a very strong element of personal memoir. And the books that have made your unique voice have been the ones where you marry storytelling with memoir. Um. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened, how you married those two together? Well, I think it it does go back to basic storytelling, Jenny. I think um, my readers, I started writing columns maybe 40 years ago, I don't know, they always taught me actually what worked for them. If I wrote a column that touched them, they would write me letters back then. And it was so often something about something very trivial and then I started, they, they guided me really towards the stories they wanted to hear and they were so often emotional stories about ordinary life that we all shared. So, you know, I was writing those columns and they were, what, 750 words um, roughly for many, many years syndicating them. And when we moved to Australia, I actually couldn't get a job over here. Nobody had heard of me or really wanted me or I didn't have the confidence or something. And so I thought, well, I kind of know what touches readers. Maybe I'll have a go at spinning that out to a larger uh, concept. And I knew from experience that talking about the loss of my son and the way that our cat had helped us, those stories really um, got big reactions from readers. So I thought, and it was actually at the same time, uh, the cat that had helped Sam died at the age of nearly 24, and Philip, my second husband, was burying the cat in the garden under the Daphne bush, and Rob, who was Sam's younger brother and had seen him run over back in 1983, he said, oh, there goes the last connection with Sam. And I thought, well, maybe it's not. Maybe the story hasn't finished being told. Maybe I need to tell the story in full. And it was a big exercise. And I really 
wasn't sure that it was working. And most, well, every publisher I sent the idea to assured me that it wasn't working. <laughs> and then I tried a, an agent, or I tried several agents who are also not at all impressed. And one of them said, um, you know, nobody wants to read a book in which a child dies. And I thought, okay, because I thought, who are these people who read books? And I thought, okay, but then in real life, children die. And in real life, when my child was run over back in 1983, the best consolation I got was from other parents who had lost children. They wrote to me and, you know, I didn't know anyone else who'd lost a child. But because of writing about in my column, they approached me with these wonderful letters and cards that were the best grief counselling that was available in 1983. And they were basically saying, you know, this happened to us and we've survived. It was the worst thing that's ever happened to us, but we've survived and we're still here. And we want to tell you that you will get through this. And I felt very indebted to those people. So I sat down to write Cleo many years after the tragedy with a um, very deep sense of indebtedness to those people and uh, wanting to be able to write something that might possibly help someone else in a more raw state of grief than I was 20, 25 years after the incident. And and so I did my best. Look, that's amazing. And to, to have a book like that, it did become an international bestseller didn't it? To have that turned down by publishers, how did you finally make the breakthrough to get somebody to take it seriously? Well, you know, Jenny, I, as you know, I've been a journalist for a very long time and I started to think, maybe I can't write, maybe I've lost my touch. And that's fair enough. You have to keep learning and refreshing all through your life. And I thought, even though people still seem to like the columns I wrote in New Zealand, maybe I had lost my touch. So I... Um, signed up for a weekend course in memoir writing, non-fiction writing, um, down at the library here in Melbourne. And um, everyone there was very intelligent and well-read and they were wonderful writers, but none of them had been published. And we sat around and at the end of the weekend we had to stand up and tell our outline of a story we had in mind, a non-fiction story. So I stood up and just told the outline of Cleo, and there was kind of silence. And I thought, oh, maybe this is working. Maybe this is okay as a story. And the woman running the course, Mimi McDonald, told me about this thing that Alan and Unwin had. And at the time, I think they were the only publishers in Australia who had it, a thing called Friday Pitch, where you sell and send in your idea, your actually fiction idea on a Friday, and they would tell you by Tuesday whether it had any legs or not. And I was frankly so kind of over the whole project of trying to write this cat book, and I knew it wasn't fiction, but I, I was willing. I'd suffered so much humiliation, I thought, well, there's not much more um, I've got to lose by sending it to Alan and Unwin. And um, and I thought, you know, if someone would take it on and I could sell 5,000 copies in New Zealand where my readers are, I'd be absolutely thrilled. Anyway, they came back to me on the Tuesday and um, said, yeah, we'll take it. I was very pleased and started working on versions. And somewhere in the middle of it, I got breast cancer, which kind of was a bit of a hiccup. But they, they took it 
Oh, no, that when it was finished, they took it to um, London Book Fair and there was this very passionate bidding war for Clio, which was lovely. I'd get the phone call in the middle of the night saying, oh, you know, people are crying because they haven't got this book. And in the end, Hodder took it. And now I think it's in 18 languages and... Uh, it was actually very hard to find a US publisher. We were back to square one, um, find, trying to get a high-profile US publisher. It took, I don't know, ages. And eventually, um, I think it's the largest privately owned publisher in the States called Kensington, uh, took Cleo on, and they've done a wonderful job with it and got it on the New York Times bestselling list, which is just amazing and um, they've sort of supported me through all my other books which yeah, getting them into Walmart and so it's, it's been quite interesting really. Yeah amazing when it starts out that nobody's interested it, it just shows you how you have to keep pushing through don't, don't, <laughs> doesn't it and, and now Cleo's headed for the big screen too what's happening with your film project? Uh, well John Barnett who produced The Whale Rider which was a wonderful movie has been dedicated to this story for, I don't know, it must be since the book came out, so it must be eight or nine years now, and determined to make this movie. Um, I think he's still hoping to start filming at the beginning of next year, but we're still waiting to hear who the star's going to be. He wants a big international star, and once he has her, all the other casting will be done around her, from what I can gather. The latest version of the script I think is very good and um, I'm quite happy with that and so we'll just see what happens but I actually don't have much power or influence over the process really. No I think most writers don't do they really. That, that. I do feel you feel um, very vulnerable when it's your own personal story like this one is Again, you just have to release it, and if it's if it's too painful or exposing, well, you don't have to buy a ticket, do you? <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> now, the subtitle for Cleo was "How a Small Black Cat Healed a Family," and now you're promoting your your new cat book. There have been a couple in between, but the latest one is Bono, the rescue cat who helped me find my way home. It's I think it's a wonderful, um, you know, theme in both books of kind of redemption and um, and restoration. So tell us a bit about Bono because Bono also has played an incredibly big role in, in your story. Yeah, it was, it was amazing actually. Um, I've always tried to be relatively honest with my readers and tell them where I'm at in my life and uh, that's how we have such a good relationship. And I, after I'd had the breast cancer and the kids had all left home and I've been happily married for 22 years to a lovely man, but this kind of thing settled in. I got very restless and I thought I've had a really good life, but what if it was the wrong life? What if I really belong somewhere glamorous, not in suburban Melbourne? What if I belong somewhere <laughs> wonderful like New York? And <laughs> at that time... And it was all, oh, the thing that triggered it was Philip bought these new pyjamas. He's still got them. They're tartan green pyjamas and they're exactly the same as the ones Dad used to wear. And <laughs> I thought, God, our life is over, you know. Now we just <laughs> want to get in our plastic urns. And 
So, yeah, anyway, so at, the, at that actual time, my US publisher, Michael, said, come over, come over to New York. Come and, you know, we'll go to some parties, we'll have some fun. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is my dream. This is what I want. So I got on the plane, not sure when I'd come back, and she said, oh, but there's just one thing. While you're here, we'd like you to foster a cat. I thought, oh, God, you know, the last thing I want, I've got a very demanding cat here at home called Jonah who's neurotic. He's actually psychotic. He's on um, anti-psychotic medicine. Um, and I needed to get away from him as much as I did from sort of being married. <laughs> and, and I thought the last thing I want is another cat. I want to go to Broadway. I want to go to the art galleries. Anyway, but you can't really say no to a US publisher. So I said, mm, all right. And I've got this friend who does creative visualisation. And he said, no, 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 just just imagine the cat you want. So I visualised this great big fat old tortoiseshell who only waddled to her feeding bowl twice a day and slept the rest of the time. This was going really well. I had Lydia with me, my daughter, who was the subject of the previous book and our conflicts we'd had over when she wanted to be a Buddhist nun. Well, she decided not to be a Buddhist nun anymore. So she went with me to this cat shelter in New York. And we got there, we opened, went in the cat room, and there was this wonderful cat I'd visualised, this tortoise shell, great big fat sleepy thing. And the person who ran the shelter said, we're so glad you've come to get Bono. I thought, what's a Bono? Suddenly this bullet flew across the air, this black cannonball, that was Bono. He had a punked up hairdo like a lion and he was crazy and we found that he, Lydia absolutely fell for him and there's no way we weren't going to go back to our awful flat without Bono. And uh, then he, he actually had advanced kidney disease so nobody would adopt him. So... The shelter manager said, look, just take Bono home to your apartment and just give him a holiday from this place. He's so um, beat up by the other cats and he, he's going to die here, so take him. So we did. Yeah, and that was wonderful. You you say in the book that the cat was a metaphor for life and really it is it is a profound book. I, I loved it. I don't even particularly – well, in later life I've, I've not become – I've become disaffected with cats in later life, let's put it that way, but I still love the book and it, I love that thing, cat is a metaphor for life because in the book it really is, isn't it? <laughs> what have cats done to you that you don't like them anymore, Jenny? Oh, look, I'm with Gareth Morgan. I just like birds. Okay. Yeah, well, I like birds too. You can keep your cat inside, which we do, away from the birds. You can be friends with all animals, I think, except bed bugs, fleas, <laughs> but a little that I don't love. But um, I think that's, you know, this whole thing about whether you're a cat person or a dog person, it's so binary, and I don't think it helps. What does help is that broader perception, that way that animals open people up in a way that, other people can't seem to do anymore for people. Yes, yes, yeah. And that, the book, it, it opens you up to, you, you know, various things about what's going on in your life as well, that somehow you you do it wonderfully. You just do it wonderfully. You're a darling. No, well, I felt Bono and I were like twin souls. We're both a bit, little bit, you know, blurry around the edges and, and, and we didn't, 
really know where our next home was going to be. And we were both a bit lost and, and we both seemed to have bad hips and <laughs> <laughs> and somehow things worked out beautifully, actually, for both of us, really. Yeah. I don't think you grow old as you get older. You grow up and I have nearly grown up now. Oh, that's lovely. I'm, I'm so relieved because Philip's such a lovely man. But... Um... <laughs> It's a darling, and look, half the female population of the world is waiting for me to die so they can have Philip. So I should just <laughs> settle down and be grateful, and I am. I'm so grateful. There's a lot that's happened in my life, and I've made so many mistakes, and I'm grateful for every one of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand what you mean by that. Um, the books do handle the aspect of grieving. Both of them are different ways. And I wondered if you've noticed that they're received differently in different countries because I'm sure different cultures do handle grieving in different ways. Has that come through in the feedback you've got? What fascinates me is that whatever culture any one of these many, many hundreds of emails I get has come from, it's the same. Everybody is the same. We all, yeah, I mean, we operate from deep love for our children and in most cases our domestic and our pets. And there's nothing we wouldn't do for any of them. And and that has been really the most fascinating. I mean, the Germans can get very poetic about it, um, but on the whole, I, I think everybody, that's why it's so bewildering that we concentrate on the differences between our cultures and our countries and when human beings, yeah. Yeah. We, we're all the same. Yeah. From what we've already said, people who are listening will understand that you've shared a, a journey that many other women of our generation have had that's it's, it's involved major personal loss, divorce, second marriage, the creation of two families, and you've used those experiences in your work. Now, I wonder, have you found a reliable way to manage the emotional toll of writing about this material all day long? It's a very perceptive question, Jenny, and not many people ask it, and I, I, I need to ponder it a little bit. Um, I think it's all right to write about pain and grief from a distance, and, you know, it was 20 years after Sam's death that I really started writing that book, and I think then you're in a state of mind to maybe be able to help others, and I think that's where the healing might come from. I mean, I was invited to the tsunami re region of Japan a couple of years ago, and the devastation and loss that people were suffering even years after the tsunami was immeasurable compared to anything I've been through. And yet they seemed to think I had something worthwhile to offer them. So I went to this great big giant Antipodean that I am, and it was some of them just wanted a stranger to cry to. And I was very happy and honoured to do that. You know, they're so deeply cultivated and restrained, they probably weren't able to do it so much to, to with each other. And so I managed to hold together, apart from getting violently at one talk. <laughs> oh, dear, we won't go there. Um, and uh, But on the way home, I just cried 
mm. all the way mm. home on the plane, you know. <laughs> it was a way of, you know, mm. so I think, well, especially when I'm meeting people who are um, in the throes of raw grief, it does take a toll. But, you know, if they ask me back to Japan, which I'd be there in a in a breath because it's one of the most meaningful things I can do with my life. What's one life worth? Not very much. If you can help one other person, it's worthwhile, isn't it? I mean, especially when you get older and older women are, you know, sometimes I think, well, in New York, when I found out there was no lock on the window, I thought, oh, my God, I might get raped and murdered. And I thought, well, actually, that's all right. <laughs> I've had a really good life. <laughs> and that, it frees you up. Yes, I yeah, love being yeah. this age. Perhaps moving from talking about the books to a slightly more general aspect of your life, what is the one thing that you think you've done more than any other that's made your 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 writing life a success? Is there one thing you've done that you could say it's the secret of your success? I think it's making an awful lot of mistakes and learning from them. I made mistakes, a big mistake, leaving school early and not going to university, getting married at 18, having babies far too young. From all of these mistakes, I think I learned things and they kind of made me an outsider or maybe an underdog, I don't know. Um, but ultimately that turned out to be a positive, I think, in a strange way. Or you can take it the other way and say they're all negatives and I could have won the Nobel Prize if I'd taken the straight route, but I doubt it, frankly. I'm pretty ordinary. <laughs> I think I don't think you're in the least bit ordinary, my dear, but maybe those experiences have, have made you very much more understanding and receptive about your readers because you do have a remarkable relationship with your readers, don't you? They, they, some of them have really become lifetime friends. And uh, I, maybe I'm a compensated extrovert. Is that what I am? You know, I actually love and treasure those relationships where I don't actually have to meet them face-to-face -face very often. Though so We've had people come from Italy, Canada, um, and France to the house because they've been so obsessed with Jonah that they've wanted to meet him. And that's all right. If they, if they want to come and knock on the door, it means that much to them. It's, it's pretty okay, mm. really. That's, that's amazing. Mm. Look, it's sometimes said that writers tend to write the same story in different guises. What would your story be if that was true? Do you believe that, for starters? And if so, do you yet understand what your story is? Mm, I, think my, I think my story is very much like anyone else's, and I continue to be fascinated by life, and um, I just... I think I like the idea of trying to find ways to survive through it and beyond that to actually deeply appreciate life and being alive. And that I think because I'd been told so little about the bad things in life, I thought when Sam died, for instance, that my life was over. I was 28 and I remember saying to older people, will this pain ever stop? What happens? And they Nobody answered, and even God didn't seem to want to talk to me about it, though I tried. And so I think, you know, I want to reassure people that even though terrible things happen and life is tough, there's no doubt about it, it should be tough, but it's also a miracle that we're here, and there's great joy to be found even in a wet day when the clouds are 
bearing down on you. You know, it's it's a great miracle to be alive. And if we can remind ourselves that, then, and if, you know, if I can do that maybe through a sentence, I'm thrilled. You also have a great ability to laugh at the things. Uh, I mean, your books have got a lot of humour in them and you have got a great ability, if it, if it becomes necessary, to just be able to laugh, haven't you? Yep. I think 90% of life is letting go and that's it. Laughter helps a great humour, helps an awful lot to letting go. I think maybe some people get it through jogging or... Um, you know, exercise at the gym and that's maybe a good way to let go or listen to music or walking in nature. But for me, being able to just release things and actually not taking yourself too seriously, it's it's very liberating. I think particularly in this day and age where everybody has to have a Facebook page and we're all taking selfies and we're encouraged, every young person is encouraged to think they're the centre of the universe and when you're young, you think you are anyway. So it's like a oh, massive global mental illness that uh, I hope we come out the other side of mm, one of these mm, days. Mm. Look, this podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's predicated a little bit on the idea of authors who are doing series that people like to follow. Are you a binge reader or have you been a binge reader in the past? And if so, who do you like to read? And is there anyone you'd like to recommend to listeners? Actually, Jenny, I'm a very slow reader. I find it hard to read when I'm writing because I immediately start channeling the voice of whoever I'm um, reading. I, I don't read a lot of fiction unless my American publisher makes me review it, which I do out of a deep sense of duty. Um, but given the choice, I like to read non, well, if I read fiction at all, it tends to be fiction that's so close to life that you feel that the author is is kind of confessing something that's really going on in their real life and they can only do it through fiction. And um, the one that I've read recently that I've absolutely loved is um, Less by Andrew Sean Greer. And it won the Pulitzer Prize, so I can't really claim um you know, that I've discovered it. But I loved it because he's a he's a gay writer and he's going around the world feeling like a fraud. And I so identify with that, not that I'm gay, but I, this thing, even, you know, when you're published in many countries, you still think, well, when are they going to find out that I'm actually from Taranaki and, um, you know, I didn't go to university, except I did have a wonderful fellowship to Cambridge University once. But, you know, I love that in that book. And it, it, there are sentences in there that are jewels. Um, and I'll read anything by David Sedaris, um, just because, again, he, make, he crafts such beautiful self-revealing sentences. And another book I'm reading at the moment, but, you know, I only read for a very short time because I, I don't know, I absorb stuff and then think about and then want to dive back in. It's actually by a friend of mine who's a professor of English literature at Melbourne University. She's written a book called Henry Smithman, The Fly Catcher, catcher uh, Deirdre Coleman. And I'd love to see a film about this, I keep telling her. H Henry Smithman was like the 
poor man's Joseph Banks. He was knocking around the world in the 18th century, going to Africa, collecting bugs and insects and never really quite making it on the global stage. And, oh, don't we all, you know, he, I, I quite identify with him. I love him. <laughs> was he an Englishman or an Australian? No, he was English. Mm-hmm. English. Mm-hmm. And, and my friend Deirdre spent 10 years writing this book. And, you know, we, we saw each other through so many lunches while she was writing this book. And Henry Smithman took her over. And, and that's why I think it would make a wonderful movie of how this man from 300 years ago uh, dominated this very clever woman's life in the 21st century. I think it's quite magical. Amazing. What was the thing that hooked her? I mean, there must have been a lot of people who didn't quite make a success of life. Why was his story something that captivated her? Do you, do you understand that? Well, a lot of her study is around 18th century literature and she's very fascinated in by slavery. And when Smithman was going out to Africa, they were slavery was at its height, and he was living among slave traders, traders and and the people who were being traded as slaves. And his perceptions were of that were surprisingly compassionate for a while. <laughs> so that's how she got lured into it, I think. And he has an awful lot of charm. He he's trying to be. Um, quite witty and upper class and it's quite hard for him and she found all his letters and had to go all around the world digging up and he's got some dried up monkeys in the basement of a museum in Vienna and a lot of his letters were in um, Sweden so he she got to travel a lot and then she went actually to Africa where he'd been living and um I'd become quite enamoured of Smithman too and um, she thought no one there would have heard of him but she got to this island and everyone there was called Smithman because he'd had about five wives. (laughs) As you've been talking, I can absolutely see it as a movie and 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 an award-winning movie too. (laughs) Stunning. Oh, I, I keep telling her that because she's an academic and academics don't always, they have different... Oh, they have a wonderful way of thinking. But, yeah, I reckon between the two of us, we could create a great story there. Well, she's it's, it's a kind of eat, pray, love, and historical eat, pray, love. <laughs> oh, and I thought she could have Chris Hemsworth being Smithman at the end. Oh, I adore him, yes. <laughs> and he could leave little bugs, little, you know, butterflies <laughs> and things on her pillow as proof that he is really still connecting with her. <laughs> And this place where she went to was so impoverished, this island, that in the end she just walked down the main street with her purse open, throwing her money to anyone who walked by because she was so devastated by the poverty. Oh, gosh. So she got back home. I think she had to wait in the airport with half an avocado. That's all she had. (laughs) (laughs) It gets better every minute. (laughs) <laughs> oh, dear, Don't love awful, your dear. women friends. I mean, I've, it's been harder for me to find them in Australia, even though we've been here 22 years. I think it's probably because I work in isolation mm. writing books. But aren't mm. women mm. friends the best? They are the best, absolutely the best. Yeah, they are. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together. So circling around back to the beginning and looking through your life, at this stage in your career, 
If you were setting up all over again, would you do anything differently? I would keep on making mistakes, Jenny. And I don't know what the 20, you know, 21st century hipster or what millennial version of making mistakes is. Maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know. But that seems to be what works for me because I have learned from those failings. And I, I think other people who are smarter can read a book or watch others and realise that it's not a good idea to make too many mistakes. I hope to God I wouldn't be taking drugs. So I don't know what I'd be doing, frankly. I think it's, is that another way of saying trust process? Because you must, at the time that you were 26, 27, 28, you probably did not think, oh gosh, I'd better make another mistake. When you were doing it, you didn't think it was a mistake, did you? No, it's just driven by my hormones a lot of the time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the rest of it was naivety, probably. Yeah. Yeah. But it's wonderful to see that that you can trust the process. That is fantastic. And keep learning. I mean, I, I think just keeping learning. And I love having younger friends too. I, I don't enjoy just sitting around talking about health with people my own age mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. it becomes a very introspective because the world is so fascinating at the moment. I'm fascinated by all of it. So I try and um, procure some of my children's friends to engage <laughs> if they'll put up with me. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So what is next for Helen the writer? What projects have you got under development? Well, you were talking about going back to square one, Jenny. Mm-hmm. And I am back at square one in that because of all the emails I've had from pe- from people who have lost siblings or parents who have lost small children. And I have feel there's a real need for a children's version of the Cleo story because, you know, you think every summer kids go back to school, there's an empty desk because some kid drowned, some kid died in a traffic accident, and people are still too traumatised or ignorant to be able to reach out to that child or or absolutely encompassed by their own grief, the adults. And I would very much, and I have done a version of it, like to write a book that could be given to children who have suffered loss themselves, you know, and being able to tell it with a cat, through a cat, and to assure them that there will be life after this event, you know, that they don't have to think life has become a vortex well it does for a while so back to the basics do you think I can find a publisher nobody wants it because they're scared I think yeah you know it's not going to sell a million copies but the five or ten copies it does sell could really help someone you know I think you might even be underestimating the numbers that would sell I've got a very personal experience with this I've got a little great nephew um, my my nephew's son who his mum died um, 18 months ago of, a, of leukemia and he was three when she died and and at the time I said to my sister who is actually an Anglican priest is there any book I could buy James that would just try and make this understandable for him and his 
words. And she said, look, honestly, in all the years that she'd been in ministry, she had not come across a book that was suitable for children in, in that going through that experience. So I I mean, I'd love to be able to give the little Jameses of this world a book like that. At the time, there wasn't anything that I could find. I, the thing that really drove it home to me was just a few months ago, I got an email from Germany where, and there was a woman, now the, this little boy had died of leukemia, young, and the child's younger sister uh, was now two years, it was two years past the death, and they were reading her Cleo every night, and she's six years old. Yes. And you think, you know, why are they reading this adult book about, you know, it needs to be there. I just, I feel in my bones one day someone's going to take it up, and I, and for me it would be a very precious book. And I think if that happened, I'd feel my work was complete, really, Jenny, you know. How many more stories do I need to tell? I do get emails from people saying, please don't stop writing. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I want to do the garden. (laughs) Maybe you could indeed publish that one. No, I don't want to. I think think it's too scary in indie publishing. um, We must talk about I've got several books of old, of columns that I'd like to put up one day somewhere but you know again it's only for the the niche people who really would like to keep hearing my voice I guess even yeah. though it's yeah. many years ago mm. well now coming to an end of our chat my dear we really have now run out of time where can readers find you online or, or in person you're doing quite a lot of promotional work in person at the moment aren't you it's been a big year actually i've got a massive tour of new zealand coming up from october the 12th um, for two weeks and i think i've got at least 10 or 11 book signings public appearances the highlights of which are two afternoon teas that the australian women's weekly is putting on um very glamorous affairs and hotels in uh, auckland and wellington and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be fabulous. And what else have I? That, no, I'm really conserving my energy for that. I've just heard that Jonah, the book after, that I wrote after Cleo, is about to come out, and they're doing a, a commercial, more commercial version uh, for Walmart in April next year in the US. So that that's kind of heartening. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I've just recorded the audio book of Cleo, which is coming out on November the 1st, I think, internationally. Boy, that was a journey, Jenny. I haven't been able to bear to read that book since I wrote it. And mm. to read it aloud was, but I didn't want an actress, an actor doing it, you know. Mm. Anyway, mm. that's interesting. Whenever I got to any emotional part in the book, I would stumble over my words, just as I have just now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, interesting, my dear. Well, look, it's been such a wonderful pleasure and privilege to talk to you. It really has been, Helen, and we'll make sure that this gets up before your New Zealand tour so that people who are interested will be able to hear it. But it's been marvellous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jenny. It's a delight. We'll see you again soon. Okay, my dear, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.